0: You're born in a modest Midwestern town. Your dad returns from the war to a factory job, but he dreams of a better future for you. You do pretty well at school. A teacher tells you you've got a gift for numbers. After you graduate from high school, you go to the nearby state college and major in accounting. To save money, you live at home with your folks. You meet your wife in the college library. She wants to be a teacher. You court the old-fashioned way, walking along the river, going to football games, holding hands at the movies. When you graduate, you get hired by a local bank, starting as a teller. She gets a job at the elementary school where you went as a kid. Within a couple of years, the bank makes you a supervisor. With the raise, you have enough money to make payments on a two-bedroom bungalow for you and your new wife, just a few blocks away from her parents. You start a family. First one baby, then a second. You take night glasses to stay ahead of the curve, and after 12 years at the bank, you get a promotion. Now you're a loan officer. It's what you've been working toward. You're making a difference. You're building your community. But times are starting to get tough in your town. The factory where your father worked finds cheaper labor somewhere else and shuts its doors. You still play poker with some of the guys who used to work there. They call you the banker. They think you're loaded. You tell them that's the hotshots on Wall Street, the Ivy Leaguers. You're like your buddies, just getting by. At the bank, your work is changing. You feel like you've been demoted, but nobody's told you. You have the same job title, but you're hardly allowed to make decisions. You spend most of your time typing numbers into the computer and telling the people who come for loans that the computer says no. Growing up, life always seemed so simple. You'd marry, have kids, have a respectable career... After 40 years, you'd retire with a gold watch and a sense of your place in the world. But that's not the way it's turned out. On TV, you can see that the rich are doing just fine, spending the millions they're making moving other people's money. One morning, your boss comes into your cubicle to tell you that things will be different. You'll be working on commission now. At home, the bills keep coming. You do the numbers and they don't add up. A couple of your friends are driving for Uber. Maybe you should try that. You always thought that if you applied yourself and played by the rules, you could live a good life and retire in comfort. That's the American dream, the way the system is supposed to work. So is the system not working? Or could it be that the system is the problem?
1: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash Promises Pay Off.
0: From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. I founded The Next Big Idea Club, along with the authors Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant, to connect people to some of the boldest new thinking shaping our culture and our future. Each week on the podcast, we bring you one idea with the power to change the way you see the world. This week, how a system supposedly based on rewarding merit has made the rich richer, the poor poorer, and everybody more miserable. We're all familiar with meritocracy. It's the idea that if you work hard enough and have enough talent, you can succeed. Who doesn't want that? It's the bedrock for the American dream, for the quintessentially American idea that everyone, not just people born wealthy, deserves a fighting chance. But Yale law professor Daniel Markowitz says meritocracy isn't just not working. It's actively undermining the very ideals we think it promotes. In his latest book, The Meritocracy Trap, How America's Foundational Myth Feeds Inequality, Dismantles the Middle Class, and Devours the Elite, Markovitz explains the mechanics of inequality and calls for a systemic makeover. I called him at a studio in New Haven to talk about what that might look like. Good morning, Daniel Markovitz. It is great to have you on the next Big Idea podcast.
2: Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be
0: here. I have found myself talking about your new book, The Meritocracy Trap, quite a bit in the last several months. I've been talking to everyone who will listen and perhaps a few who did not want to listen. That's a little bit like what I've been doing, too. Maybe we can start by defining what meritocracy is and why it's failing us.
2: It's the idea that people should get ahead based on their own accomplishments rather than, say, their parents' social class or their race or their ethnicity or their gender. And that idea is really hard to object to. And it's not that we don't have a good enough meritocracy or that we have too little meritocracy and that somehow we're failing to live up to the idea that people should get ahead based on their own accomplishments. But rather, it's that we have too much of it, that that system, once it gets established, ends up perpetuating inequality, ends up being the central vehicle of class stratification. And, by the way, even as it excludes most Americans from real opportunity, also harms the few who seem to win. The basic idea is that meritocracy is the problem. It's the disease. It's not the cure.
0: And you are saying that while meritocracy may have been useful and had a positive impact for some period of time, in the last 50, 60 years, the story has changed. The first thing
2: that's happened is that elite education has just exploded and taken off. And the thing about education is that one person's education, when it gets better, reduces the value of everybody else's education. A second thing that's happened to the middle class is in the labor market. We have changed the way in which we make things and the way in which we provide services to favor exactly the elaborate educations that rich kids now get. The inequality in education, the inequality in the labor market, these are structural forms of inequality and exclusion. They're based on big systems that make it impossible for individual people to fight against them. But what meritocracy then does is because the idea of meritocracy is anybody can get ahead and you get ahead based on your own accomplishments, it then tells middle class people who are being structurally excluded, it's your fault. You're not good enough. You didn't try hard enough. You don't have the skills needed. And so it blames the people who are excluded
0: and characterizes the people who are excluded as failures. This is a really interesting insight for me, that the psychology of this experience is a critical piece of it. There's this double whammy of being told, there's no way for you to win, and it's your fault. I mean, we have a system that rewards merit, and you don't have any, and that's crushing. Right. And this resonates for me because it feels like there's something that's emerged in the last few years that's a deep... Loss of dignity that has resonated in our politics.
2: I think that's right. And it's crushing in a lot of ways. And we see this in the opioid epidemic, in increased rates of alcoholism, suicide. These phenomena have become so pervasive in the United States that they're actually reducing life expectancy, increasing mortality for significant chunks of the American middle class. That never happens. And by never, I mean never. I don't think there's another instance in human history in which a significant population has suffered a decrease in life expectancy without a famine, a war, or an economic collapse. And this is obviously speculative. But the immediate causes of the decrease in life expectancy are forms of direct or indirect self-harm. And one way to understand the self-harm is as the action of the moral insult that meritocracy imposes on people directed against the people themselves, their own bodies. Marx characterized what he called the lumpenproletariat as the group of people who are so excluded from the economic system that they can't, because of the economic system, understand their exclusion as what it is. And meritocracy does exactly this to the middle class. It excludes the middle class structurally and then claims everything's based on individual accomplishment and desert. And that claim makes it difficult for the middle class to understand its exclusion as structural exclusion. And that has its own political costs.
0: Were you not surprised by the election of Donald Trump?
2: I actually was not surprised. And I know there's obviously a deep question about the nature of his support and what drives his supporters. I did interview a bunch of Trump supporters in the upper Midwest, and this was not scientific and a small sample of people, but it was interesting to me that everyone I interviewed took a dim view of him as a person and was not terribly attracted to or impressed by his bigotry. But they had the view that the system was rigged, that the elite and its claims of things like righteousness, the rule of law was deploying these faux virtues as a way of continuing to rig the system and that somebody need to smash it. Historically, there are very few societies that have succumbed to as great a concentration of income and wealth in as small an elite as we have now that haven't had, in fact, worse cataclysms befall them. So this is what happens when you create the kind of inequality that we have. And so far, to be blunt, we've gotten off lightly. It could have been and it could still be a lot worse.
0: Let's talk about the elites. Who exactly are these elites? Are you one of these elites, Daniel? And how have their circumstances changed? So
2: the elite in general is, as a shorthand, the 1%. But more broadly, it includes those adjacent to the 1% in the next maybe 4 or 5% who credibly could get into the 1%, who go to the same schools and institutions as the 1%. And it probably excludes the 0.00001% who are old-fashioned, capitalist, inherited wealth people. So that's the group I'm talking about. And it sounds like it's a narrow group, but we have such incredible inequality and concentration of income and wealth at the top that that group captures easily a fifth of the income in the country right now. And it captures almost all of the economic growth. So although it's a small number of people, it's incredibly consequential for the allocation of privilege in our broader society. I am, I guess, part of it in the sense that I went to these institutions, I have the degrees, I owe whatever income or privilege or status I have to this meritocratic system. So I don't have a position of moral purity or privilege with respect to this system
0: central to your argument and what's really distinctive about your argument, I think, is this observation that the elite have become a new class of exploited labor and that meritocracy has become a gilded cage that excludes everyone else and ensnares those inside it. Can we talk a little bit about the suffering of the elite?
2: It is true that having rich parents and getting fancy educations is more or less a necessary condition for staying in the elite yourself. But it's not a sufficient condition because meritocracy has become so competitive that even if you get all that education, you still might not make the cut, as it were. And what that means is that rich kids are pushed and prodded and tested. They get tutors. They get coaches. They go to schools that evaluate them constantly. There's threshold after threshold, application season after application season, where if they don't put their best foot forward, they could get excluded. And so they're constantly under pressure as kids to do things that they may not find interesting or may not care about, to work all the time in order to retain their status and caste. And then they get into a workforce where there are jobs that just reproduce the gauntlet they've just run at school. So you're working all the time. You're working at tasks that you don't want. And the root of all of this is the structure of meritocratic production, If you're rich because you've got this massive investment in your own skills or what economists call your own human capital, the only way to get income out of that is by mixing it with your own work and deploying your work at whatever tasks other people are willing to pay you for. And so you become like an asset manager whose portfolio contains you.
0: Markovitz says this isn't just a problem for people who've inherited their parents' wealth. If you're elite for whatever reason, he says you suffer.
2: Think about things like what we've recently seen with football players in the NFL, with the various kinds of brain injuries that football players are suffering. This is, in fact, a direct consequence of meritocratic inequality. So that you know, sports is like the pure meritocracy and it drives people to get better and better in competition with each other. And what that's done in football is it's meant that people have gotten bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger and faster and faster, working out harder and harder and harder until the game has become almost literally a kind of mass suicide because its dangers are so high. I don't think there's reason to believe that that would be true of football among people who were like physically normal people who hadn't spent their whole life training and being selected for extremes of athletic achievement. But it is true once you make football this hyper-competitive, hyper-intensive thing where if you make it to the NFL, you're a millionaire and everybody else gets zero income from the game. And so we see this in other sectors. Now, it's not that there are a lot of NFL players who constitute a large share of the 1%, but I think that this phenomenon, this pattern is broader than just in those narrow professions that I've described.
0: Markovitz says we tend to see the success of highly talented people as proof that meritocracy works. But we also put a moral spin on the story because we reward what society thinks is important. Success is the proof that a person is socially worthy.
2: We think of merit as something that measures the deserved rewards of the skilled. But if it turns out that the skills themselves are valuable only when there's inequality— then the idea that the elite deserves its rewards and that that dessert can justify inequality is like a circular argument. When there's inequality, the rich have skills that make them rich and therefore produce more inequality. But there's no reason to want that world. From outside the closed loop, you could say, well, wouldn't it be better if there were more equality? And then what the rich are so good at Well, it wouldn't be so valuable anymore. They wouldn't get paid so much, but they wouldn't get paid so much because they wouldn't be so valuable, and maybe that's a better world. The same thing is true for lawyers' work or managers' work or bankers' work or, for that matter, doctors' work. Doctors who have skills that cure rich people's diseases get paid a lot more than doctors who have skills that cure poor people's diseases. What does that mean? It means that the medical profession concentrates on rich people's diseases. And there are lots of poor people's diseases, particularly in the developing world, that could be cured if we did research on them, but nobody does research on them because if you invent the thing that cures them, nobody can pay for the cure, and so there's no incentive. Does that really mean that a doctor who works on poor people's diseases is less skilled than a doctor who works on rich people's diseases? That just can't be right. But our whole system of reward and merit is based on that thought, which can't be right.
0: So the middle classes are falling behind, and the system tells them it's their own fault. And the upper classes are so desperate to maintain their status that they lose sight of what's really important. And the important work that needs to be done doesn't get done. If we want to fix the problem, Markovitz says, we need to know how it went so wrong.
1: Learn more at TIAA.org backslash Promises Pay Off.
0: It's June 15th, 2018. Rick Singer gets a phone call at his office. Singer runs the Edge College and Career Network, and this is his busy season. Now's the best time to recruit high-value clients for the next year. It's Gordon Kaplan on the other end. He's a well-known attorney, and he has a question. What does he need to do to get his daughter into an Ivy League school? Kaplan already knows the answer. Actually, the answers. There are basically three ways in. First, there's the front door, where his daughter gets in on her own merit. We're looking for those special characteristics, a passion. Uh, Good grades, sure, but not someone who's just slogged through and uh, checked off all the boxes. We want someone. Kaplan's daughter is a good student, better than average, but her test scores aren't high enough to get her into a top tier college. The second way in is through a big donation, ideally enough to get Kaplan's name on a building.
2: And to those who are here today who are alums and parents who have been so generous in providing financial aid, I want all of us to thank you so very much for doing that.
0: This is perfectly legal, but it's expensive and it's not guaranteed. It just means Kaplan's daughter's application will get a second look. That's why he's interested in door number three, where he pays Rick Singer's company a voluntary donation of $75,000 to jack up the score on his daughter's college entrance exam. Proctors will be bribed, the exam will be altered, and his daughter will score exceedingly well. Or that's the idea. I'm deeply ashamed. I'm terribly sorry. Gordon Kaplan, a high-powered Manhattan attorney, is the first parent caught up in the college
2: admissions scandal to go before cameras and express remorse for his role.
0: Someone else was on the phone when Kaplan and Singer cut their deal. The FBI. The FBI. Their investigation into college admissions fraud, codenamed Operation Varsity Blues, is now headline news. Dozens have been arrested, including celebrities, professionals, and entrepreneurs. Some, like Gordon Kaplan, have been sentenced to jail. In all, more than 30 parents have admitted to giving Rick Singer over $25 million to get their kids into college through a door most of us never knew existed. The scandal uncovers a web of corruption at universities and testing companies and sports academies around the country. But Daniel Markovitz says it also reveals something else, the utter desperation that America's upper classes feel to qualify their children to be members of the meritocratic elite.
2: In the 1950s, the sons of rich fathers didn't apply to Harvard. They put themselves down for Harvard because they just chose where to go because you got into where your father went if you were from a sufficiently prominent family. And meritocracy was expressly embraced to break up and open up that elite and to replace it with an elite that anyone could get into and that was more dynamic and more capable and more energetic. And that worked because the old aristocrats lacked both the capacity and the interest in training their children, But then what started to happen is the new elite that was built by meritocracy, well, it knows how to train and it has a taste for training. And so the rich started investing more and more in educating their children and the gap between the investments in education that rich kids get and that middle class kids get started growing and growing and growing. And at the same time, the new elite started dominating work and the nature of work changed in a way that favors exactly the skills that elite education gives. And so you start getting feedback loops between school and work in which a narrower and narrower group of people started capturing all the places at the best schools and all the jobs at the highest paying companies and then passing that on to their children now through the mechanism of incredible investments in education. And if you don't get the education that rich kids get, it's very hard to compete with them in the labor market. And so we've got this system of social stratification, really a kind of caste system, really a kind of aristocracy again. Only now it's based on schooling, not on breeding. But that doesn't make it any more open or any
0: more fair. The intensity of this competition for these elite schools has been highlighted recently with this college admissions bribery scandal. So how do you think about the scandal? I mean, on the one hand, it validates this notion that elite education has never been more crucial, right? But on the other hand, it's it, right. it, the cheating is not is not the point. That's not the fundamental problem. Right. So let me
2: talk about both parts of that. You know, one thing to say, the first thing to say about the, the college bribery scandal is, you know, it's disgraceful what these parents did to get their kids in. That's just the tip of, of an iceberg because the irony of it is that the only thing that made what the parents did illegal is that the colleges did not capture the return to their own corruption. Interesting. So, you know, if instead of bribing Yale's soccer coach, a rich family just bribes Yale to get their kid in, well, that's perfectly legal. <laughs> okay. That's not right either. And so there's a lot of wrongdoing. But – and here's something that's really important to emphasize – That kind of conduct is not the main reason why Yale and Harvard and Stanford and Princeton and other elite universities are dominated by rich kids. It's that the 1% pays for its kids to go to schools that mean that by the time the kids get to college, they have much greater academic accomplishments than other kids. And that's the main source of exclusion in our society today, that if you don't have rich parents and your parents can't afford to buy you fancy education— You can't compete when it comes time to college admissions with the kids whose parents did buy those educations.
0: Markovitz argues that the evolution of the education system, from delivering excellent education to everyone to superior education to just a few, is destroying opportunity for the middle class.
2: Excellent education makes people good at things that are worth doing. Superior education makes people better than other people at things that may or may not be worth doing. Our system of meritocracy focuses on superior education. Let me give you a very concrete example. Think about management. So management is, in effect, the skill of coordinating other people so that collectively you're more productive than you would be if you just each did your own thing. And that's worth doing. That's a real skill. And an excellent educational system would teach people to be good managers. But there are lots of different kinds of management. There's management where that skill is spread widely across, say, a company so that everybody is a little bit a manager. And what the top managers do is they sort of use various deputies to produce collectively coordination. And that's the way mid-century American firms were run. And it's still incidentally the way in which, say, German companies are run today – Everybody's a little bit of manager. If you're a unionized worker and you have lifetime employment, you're a little bit of manager because you, through your union, help run the firm, and because you're going to be there your whole life, you invest in yourself on the firm's behalf over the course of your work life. And so what you have is a management style, which is communal, collective, and shared. And excellent education would teach people to do well at that. Now, what American business schools teach and what American law schools teach is a series of skills that undermine that kind of management and replace it with a very autocratic form of management in which a very small number of executives at the top boss everybody around completely. They monitor, they control, they direct. They reduce everybody else in the company to almost a robot obeying their commands. Now, that's actually, I think, not something that's really worth being good at. Because it turns out that if you run companies in that way, it might be better for shareholders and it might be better for CEOs. But it's worse for workers. It's worse for the society. It's even worse in the long
0: term for economic growth. At the same time, Markovitz says, the education system has gotten less and less relevant for middle-skill workers with middle-class aspirations.
2: On-the-job training by America's companies has effectively been eliminated. It used to be big American companies promoted from within and trained workers at all levels in the company, inside the company. If you were, for example, an 18 year old high school graduate in the Detroit area in 1950, you could show up at one of the big three auto workers. You could get hired to a unionized job, which would be lifetime employment. And if you were hardworking and smart, you could get trained by that company and you could end up 20 years, 30 years later. Being a tool and die maker, which would be a skilled worker in the company who had been trained inside the company, and you could make eighty to $100,000 a year in contemporary dollars, in, in present-day dollars. If you were a white-collar worker who signed up at IBM in the 1960s at the bottom rung of the ladder, you could expect over the course of your 40-year working career to spend four full years, so a tenth of your time, in 100% IBM-paid professional training. Today, American companies provide indistinguishable from zero training. All the training has been shipped out into other institutions. At the top, it's shipped out into universities, business schools, law schools, graduate schools of economics. And that's a much less equal form of training because to do that, you have to be rich enough to spend some number of years not working, not getting paid, and paying a lot of money to absorb education. And so training, which used to be an equalizer in America, has now become a stratifier, a source of inequality, a source of subordination. And that's a big problem for our workplace.
0: It strikes me that there's a broader comment here that the way we think about intelligence is way too narrow. I mean, as somebody who's hired a lot of employees over the years, you really need a diversity of kinds of intelligence and kinds of people to build effective companies. And I think our education system fails to fully appreciate this. I think that's right. If our education system continues to succeed at
2: remaking the workplace in its image, what we're going to do is we're going to create workplace structures that similarly value only one kind of intelligence. You know, it takes actually an enormous amount of training to be able to be an Amazon warehouse worker. That is to say, to be able to do for eight hours a day repetitive tasks without discretion or distraction or judgment or interest, and not just break down under the strain of that kind of constant surveillance and control. A lot of things have to be done to a person,
0: and it's a kind of education to make them able to do that. The obsession with Ivy League plus colleges is, from what I can see, more typical of McKinsey and top consulting firms, top law firms than the tech world. I think that that the sensibility in the tech world is there's a great fondness for autodidacts, you know, people who've learned on their own Mm -hmm. outside of the system. And, And I think it's a sensibility that is growing, not shrinking.
2: It's certainly the case that the tech companies are not nearly as captured by status for its own sake as the providers of professional services are, and the banks, and some of the old legacy big corporations. I'm more skeptical of the proposition that the employment into these tech companies will either be sufficient or even will, in any significant way, rebuild a middle class or reduce inequality. The compensation structures inside tech companies are pretty unequal. They're significantly more unequal, for example, than the compensation structures inside a a legacy law firm or a big bank. So I agree with you that credentialism is less prominent in the tech sector than in other parts of the elite economy. But I'm not sure that if you look at the effect on the distribution of income
0: that tech companies have, that they look that great. To me, it's interesting that it feels like just in the last decade or so, there's been a clear sense that meritocracy has won. I think back on, you know, 10 years ago, ExxonMobil, I think, was the most valuable company in the world, followed by Walmart. Now, the most valuable companies in the world, many of them were built by second-generation immigrants, right? Google, Sergey Brin was born in Russia. Jeff Bezos, who runs Amazon, was raised by his stepfather, who was an immigrant from Cuba. The CEO of Microsoft is Satya Nadella, who was raised in India, If you believe in liberal meritocratic values, this is a wonderful, uplifting story.
2: Well, I think that that's true in lots of ways. The share of the Forbes rich list that is self-made has grown dramatically over the past 50 years. The openness of elite institutions of all sorts to people who are not members of the old hereditary American aristocracy, to people who are not, you know, bluntly white Anglo-Saxon Protestant men, has expanded enormously. But at the same time, other forms of racialized exclusion and forms of class exclusion have grown so that the wealth gaps between, for example, whites and African Americans have not shrunk appreciably over time, even though we now have a larger black elite than we used to have the social and economic mobility of middle-class people has not grown over time, even though the institutions are in some formal sense more open than they used to be. You have to distinguish between meritocracy on the one hand and equality of opportunity on the other hand. In conditions in which the rich out-educate and out-train everybody else, meritocracy does not promote equality of opportunity. It's rather the
0: opposite. So the ways education and work have evolved since the middle of the last century have trapped us in a cycle of inequality and class stratification. We're teaching people to be bad managers and downtrodden workers, and basically, nobody's happy. So what do we do? Do we give up on the American dream? Markovitz has a better idea. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, If you have thoughts about what you're hearing today on the show or any of the ideas we explore on this podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Join the conversation with me and many of the featured authors at NextBigIdeaclub.com. We've talked quite a bit about the challenge that we're up against, and now I'd love to talk about what we can do to fix it. And the stakes here are really high. I mean, you pointed out that there's only one example of a country that has had as much concentration of wealth and privilege as we have today that has not ended in revolution or war, and that was the United States in 1929.
2: Exactly right. And that's both a source of caution and a source of hope, because maybe there is something exceptional about America that makes us able to cope with this and to find a way forward. And that's the hope at the root of the book.
0: Let's start with what we can do to fix education. You have this great description of top American universities as being like enormous hedge funds. What is it, 35 or $40 billion now over the endowment of Harvard, with teeny little schools attached to them. And meanwhile, on a per capita basis, it's actually educating fewer people. It is certainly educating a smaller share of the
2: population. It's educating a richer share of the population. And the not-for-profit status and the tax benefits that come with it amount to a huge public subsidy. And so how do we fix it? The way to fix it, I think, is to be very clear about two possible paths and why one path is wrong and the other is right. The path that is wrong, which is the more conventional path, is to say what we need to do is we need to be fairer in deciding who gets to go to which school. We need to unbias the tests. Universities need to look for kids from non-elite backgrounds who have good academics and admit them. And we can keep our meritocracy. We can keep the exclusivity of elite schools, not just universities but high schools, kindergartens. But if we have a fair way of deciding who merits it, we'll have more equality. And what we have found again and again and again over the past 50 years is that that's just false. That precisely because the rich pay so much to educate their kids – doesn't matter how fair the system is, the rich are going to win when they play by its rules. So the alternative approach is to make the schools less elite, to reduce the difference between the amount that's invested in kids who go to the best schools and kids who go to less good schools. And the natural way to do that is dramatically to expand the enrollments of elite schools. There's no reason why the Ivy League can't educate twice as many students as it does now. And there's no reason why the next tier down can't also educate twice as many students as it does now. And there's no reason why elite private high schools can't educate two or three times as many students as they do now. And if the society as a whole were to do that and just massively expand the number of students who go through these educations, what it would do is it would mean that elite education was no longer as exceptional. It would free up resources in the rest of the system. If you took a bunch of students out of classes that now have 35 students a class and brought them into private schools, this would increase the classes in private schools and decrease the classes in public schools, which would also improve public schools. And so what you would have is a much more equal education system, and it would produce a less extravagantly elite, but a much larger, broader educated class, and
0: that would promote a great deal of equality. I find it very hopeful that we have, you know, seven, eight billion people who increasingly will have access to smartphones and therefore access to all of the, at least a digital version of really enriching educational experiences. And meanwhile, apparently one of the top five schools from which tech firms are hiring is the University of Phoenix, which is like an online education. What do you think?
2: I think one has to be careful. You know, the people who use online schooling, effectively, remain actually overwhelmingly people who are privileged by traditional schooling. You need, among other things, a quiet, stable place to study, and that's hard to do if you're not rich. But you also need a series of study skills and learning skills, which those courses tend not to give. They tend to be useful to people who already have them. So there's a little bit of a problem there. But I think the biggest hope of them is something you actually didn't mention, which is micro-credentialing. One big difference between traditional workplace training and university based education is that university based education is delivered in four year chunks. Or if you go to law school, three year chunks. Or if you go to medical school, seven year chunks. And the chunkiness of it is a big disincentive to people who aren't already pretty elite and rich to get it because it means you need to be able to set aside a substantial percentage of your life, like a tenth of your life, to get this thing. Whereas micro credentialing, If one can use online technologies to identify, break down into chunks, then deliver and test specific skills that are needed for particular jobs, and thereby reliably let people get a six-month skill that then advances their career and increases their wages, that would be, I think, a big deal. And it would especially be a big deal... If the labor market and the job site could be restructured in such a way that makes micro-credentialing really economically valuable to
0: people who get it. So how about fixing the workplace? How can we redesign work to make it more fair?
2: Middle-class, middle-income, mid-skilled labor is the highest taxed factor of production in the American economy right now. The total tax burden right now on hiring one $2 million-a-year worker plus a bunch of algorithms and robots, is lower than the total tax burden on hiring $20,000 a year workers. And that produces a massive tax disincentive to promote the middle class, which again is a very odd thing to do in a society in which everybody agrees that the middle class needs to be promoted. So one thing to do in the tax system is to fix that. An important way to fix that is with the Social Security wage tax, which right now has its base capped at about $130,000 a year. So after somebody has a wage of $130,000 a year, they pay zero Social Security wage tax. And that amounts to basically a 10% tax cut on rich people. So undo that. That would raise revenue, which could then be spent, by the way, on education. But setting that aside, it would also give incentives to employers again to make middle-class jobs. Then aside from taxes, wage subsidies for middle-class jobs are a very good idea. I think Birmingham, Alabama is starting to experiment with that. In medicine, reforms that favor the delivery of medical services by nurse practitioners, by GPs, rather than by specialists would, again, also be good for equality. Lots of those reforms, by the way, would also improve the overall quality of the sector for its consumers. That's important, too. But we shouldn't neglect the importance of regulation for its effect on the distribution of jobs. There should be a general principle that when we make regulations, we look to see what its effect is on middle-class jobs. And we discourage regulations that undermine middle-class work
0: and encourage regulations that promote middle-class work. Markovitz says a big step would be to change the hearts and minds of the elite. But how do you convince people to give up the things they value now in favor of some elusive theoretical future in which everyone is more equal?
2: An interesting thing maybe for you to do or for listeners to do too, I've done this casually and unscientifically, talking to acquaintances across the elite in a variety of fields, I asked them, if you could exchange a third of your income for 25 hours a week that are just yours to devote to whatever you think is most important, would you take the trade? and 100% of the people i ask say yes but 0% of the people i ask have actually done it and that seems like it's a sign of something important
0: and and maybe it's a structural problem in the way that our work operates right it's it's not that option is typically not available exactly right we're not told you can work 60% of the time for 60% of the compensation
2: absolutely and you lose not just 60% you don't just lose the wages you lose the status because you've got to shift to a different company if you want to work on that model. And the new company will not be the gold place. It's not going to be Goldman Sachs. They won't let you work on that model.
0: Would you describe the meritocracy trap as a kind of manifesto? We had a communist manifesto. This is more of a post-meritocratic manifesto, a call to action. And you said that perhaps there's a way to revise the old slogan about the workers of the world uniting.
2: Well, if the diagnosis that I give is correct, which is that meritocracy you know, excludes the rest and ensnares the rich, then there's a sense in which all of the workers of the world can unite, the middle class that is excluded and the elite that is trapped in these alienating superordinate jobs and that collectively they have nothing to lose but their chains. And I hope a whole world to win.
0: Thank you so much, Daniel. That was a whole lot of fun.
2: Thank you again.
0: If you have thoughts about The Meritocracy Trap or other books in the series, we'd love you to join the conversation at nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. You can subscribe to the club and get a free copy of The Meritocracy Trap with the promo code MERIT. That's nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast, promo code MERIT, M-E-R-I-T. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast you'll find the episode notes and a link to The Next Big Idea Club. A special thanks today to Daniel Markovitz. His book, The Meritocracy Trap, is available wherever books are sold. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. This episode of The Next Big Idea was written by Alex Kriptoski. Sound designed by Jake Gorski. Associate producer is Caleb Bissinger. Our series producers are Emma Cortland and Michael Kovnod. Our senior producer is Jonathan Miller. Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louis, and Hernán López for One